when I say the what, when, and where, that's parents are choosing, what are we having for dinner tonight? We're having spaghetti and meatballs and broccoli and garlic bread. And that's what's for dinner. And then the kids show up to the table and they get to decide, I only want to eat the pasta part. I don't want meatballs and I only want the garlic bread or whatever it is. And they can choose that those are the only two things I'm eating tonight. And maybe I want more pasta and the parents don't step in and say, but then if you want more pasta, you have to eat broccoli, right? Because I like to say it is set it and forget it. Once you put the food out on the table, you've decided it's 6 p.m. This is what we're having for dinner. We're eating at the kitchen table, the what, when, and where. Now it's up to your child to navigate what food is on the table. The big question is this. In a world of fake Instagram models and fad diets, how do real people achieve their fitness goals? We are an army of hardworking women changing their lives through fitness and health. Wherever you are at on your journey, we have the answers to how to make working out and eating well a part of your life. Join us in changing the dialogue for women everywhere. Welcome to the Thick Thighs Save Lives podcast. Hi guys, we have an amazing guest on our podcast this week. Nicole Cruz is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, mom of three, and wife who takes on an intuitive eating non-diet approach to food. Let's go. Yes. <laughs> so whether you're parenting your children or reparenting yourself, Nicole is devoted to helping you foster a healthy relationship with food, which I know we could all use. I'm here for that. Yes. So welcome, Nicole. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm super excited. Well, we're super excited to have you on because I think that the ladies, anyone who is thinking about adjusting how they're looking at food for themselves and their family is really going to benefit from this episode. Absolutely. So Nicole, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in this field? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I got started in nutrition because of my own disordered relationship with food. And so I was, I'll keep it really concise, but in college, I kind of was going down a bad path with my eating disorder and everything. And it kind of led me to think, I don't know what I want to do anymore. Like I was in school to be a science major and I didn't know what I was going to do with that. And so I kind of had to just stop and reevaluate everything. And that's when I decided through my own recovery that I really wanted to go back to school and help other people heal their relationship with food. And so that's how I landed in nutrition and knowing that I really wanted to do eating disorder work and really help in that specific arena. And then it was just over time too that having my own kids and who are now nine, six, and four. So when I had my nine-year-old and we would be at the mommy and me classes and at preschool and I was just interacting with all of these other parents who were really stressed about food and who didn't know how to help their children in the best way possible and who were doing things that were entirely well-intentioned, but that I was seeing had the potential to create disordered thinking and eating patterns from so young. And I was hearing those things, you know, in my teenage and adult clients that were struggling with eating disorders. And then I was, was seeing them 
in these other relationships with food between parent and child. And that's when I really started diving much deeper into um, family feeding as well. And not that we can entirely, you know, prevent eating disorders, but I see this work as prevention also in trying to help lay that healthy foundation with food from the get-go instead of having to end up in my office in 10 years or so and having to try to undo and repair all of that work. So yeah, so that's where I'm really focused now is both on family feeding as well as individuals healing their own relationship with food, whether that's just consider disordered eating and wanting to work on an intuitive eating path or if that's an actual diagnosed eating disorder. I love that. I love when you find your like calling through a personal experience. I feel like those people are the most passionate about what they're doing is because like you went through this in your life and then and the most compassionate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then really find like what your niche is to helping so many other people. Yeah. And it's like, great. let's talk prevention. I I mean, I, I'm sure this happens to you all the time, but like those light bulb moments of like, Oh my God, if someone had said this to me when I was like, how would it have changed my whole entire path? Like the work you're doing is so important. It's so important. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because I see that a lot too, actually in, you know, just on social media and things like that, where people say, oh my gosh, like I wish that somebody had said this to me or I'll put up like things to say to your kids and they'll say, I need to say this to myself. It's the same work. And that's why I say reparenting yourself too. It's the same work in how we talk to our kids as to how we need to think about shifting our own dialogue in our head about the way we speak to ourselves about food in our own bodies as well. Yeah. Like how are you going to teach somebody algebra if you can't do a single problem by yourself. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So one of the things, one of my favorite points that you bring up so much in your content is our broken relationship with food. Many women feel the lack of general knowledge on how to eat. And then one day there is a tiny human who relies entirely on every nutritional need. How does first healing our relationship with food help our children in the long run? I think it's Partially what you just said, right? How can you even start to teach somebody this if you can't do it yourself? And I actually, I talk a lot about the energy that we're putting into food and the way that we talk about bodies. And I think that's just a huge piece of it too, that if you have all of this fear around food, fear around your own body, hatred for it, all of these things, you can still say the right thing to your child, quote unquote, right thing. And that doesn't mean that they're not going to pick up on the tone or the fear or whatever it is. And so I think that's a huge piece too, is for us to really be able to embody that ourselves so that through the messaging, it's not just spouting words that they're actually really hearing and feeling from us. Uh, The trust that we have, which I think is a huge piece too, if we don't trust ourselves with food, how are we going to trust our children to listen to their body and to feed themselves? And so often all these things, like if I believe I can't be around chips because I'm going to eat them all, then how am I going to feel when I watch my child eating chips? And how might I step in and interfere in that relationship? And so it's so complex. There's so many pieces to it, but I think that we really have to we have to at least be aware of our own relationship with food and be working on that in order to not 
in some form be pushing that towards our child. And that could be in all different ways. Um, And I should say too, another piece of that, it's not just the language and the way we talk about it. It's also that they watch our behaviors. You know, you could say all foods are okay, but if you can never go out with them and eat a piece of pizza or it doesn't have to be pizza, people are like, well, I don't like pizza. It doesn't have to be pizza. If you can never eat anything but a salad with your kids or whatever it is, then they're going to see mom never eats the same way that I do. And maybe that's how women are supposed to eat or these different messages that they're going to pick up on by just watching us and the way we interact with food. Mm. And the way we interact with our bodies too, right? Like if we are standing in front of the mirror, picking apart our bodies and focusing, putting so much focus into them, how do we expect our kids to not see that, pick up on that, think that's normal, think that's what we do when we stand in front of the mirror? Like all of these behaviors, I know all moms out there, like they're always listening, but like they really are. So like, what are they hearing? Yeah, for sure. I know that's very much even my story is my mom was always on a diet, you know, and this was like 80s, 90s. So it was like cabbage soup diet and Jenny Craig and Weight Watchers and all the things. And I forgot I did the cabbage soup diet until you just said that. I did did that. (laughs) It's so bad. Yeah, I grew up with my parents like cycling through that a few different times and Mm -hmm. just watching that and they would feed us like normally. I was never told to go on a diet or that I should eat different, but my mom did that. And she also had the thigh master, you know, from like Suzanne Summers and she would track. I'd watch her measure, you know, and record her measurements in her little book for her, you know, body size and all of these things. And so I was just picking up on all of that, even though I didn't feel like I needed to do it or something was wrong with my body in that moment. But when I was a teenager then, and I was like, oh, my body's changed. Maybe I'm supposed to be tracking it. Maybe I'm supposed to be changing the way I'm eating. It was just like, here was this, going back to laying that healthy foundation, here was this foundation that had been built over all of these years of watching what women are supposed to do to control and change their body. So then I was like, well, I know how to do that. (laughs) You know, (laughs) let me start cutting back my calories and doing all these things so I can change my body too. It's so heartbreaking. It's, Mm -hmm. it's so, so heartbreaking. And like you said, like, you know, there was no ill intent there, but the, the messaging was sort of like, you'll be initiated into this soon as a, as a woman, Mm -hmm. when you become a woman, that's when you'll get your own thigh master and measure yourself every day and eat cabbage soup for 10 days in a row. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's almost like that is so normalized that that's kind of almost what you aspire to, because that's how you know that you've kind of become a woman and become your mom. And uh, that's what all little girls are Mm. looking to do. So it's, yeah, it's so insightful that, and God, there's already so much pressure on us, but like, okay, we'll get there. We'll talk about how we kind of work through that. But I know that you are really anti-diets and that you push a lot of nutritional nutrition through intuitive eating. So can we just talk for a second about intuitive eating? We've um, introduced this to our listeners and we've had some experts in the field and talking about how, you know, we can improve our habits through intuitive eating. Can you just talk a little bit about what intuitive eating means to you and really specifically 
Can you sell us on how we get started on intuitive eating without eating everything we want and kind of being unhappy with ourselves for doing that? Yes. Although I can't promise that you don't need to go through that phase or that you won't go through that phase. So intuitive eating is the joke is kind of like intuitive eating is just eating, right? But we just like created all of these silly rules and guidelines that we have to follow. But if we just ate and listened to our body, responded to our hunger and fullness, ate the foods that both felt good to our body and that we enjoyed, then that would be intuitive eating. And and there is this aspect of gentle nutrition and being thoughtful about, am I getting a variety of foods in? But the difference is it's about incorporation of foods and am I getting a variety instead of cutting foods out, restricting. It's, I have to not eat these things. So it's really like, what's going to make me feel good? What can I incorporate in? And that sort of thing. And so there's this basic idea. I mean, that's like just the core basis of it. And there is a more formalized idea around intuitive eating by two dietitians, Evelyn Tribley and Elise Resch. And, you know, they have the fourth edition of their intuitive eating book out now and everything. And they talk about how they developed these 10 principles of intuitive eating to get people to heal their relationship with food and because of our dieting world. So there is a like formality around intuitive eating that came from two dietitians, but in essence, really, it's just listening to our bodies and coming from a place of self-care and making sure that we are fed and nourished and feel good. So that's really the basis. Now, when we talk about though, you know, how are you going to go through and not eat everything in sight? For some people, and this is not everybody, but for some people that is part of their process and they truly need to go through this phase of, yes, all food is allowed. And sometimes when we give ourselves permission, we, I call it like the slingshot effect, right? Like if you think about like, I'm pulling back, I'm not allowed to have any of these foods. Oh my gosh, I'm allowed to have them. Pow. That's all that you want all of a sudden because you've been pulling back, pulling back, restricting, restricting. And so it's normal part of the process to go all the way into all I want to eat now are those foods that I've been telling myself I'm not allowed to have. And I don't want to eat those foods I've been forcing myself to eat like the kale or there's nothing wrong with kale, but it's usually like one of those things that people <laughs> it's feel It's the staple they, that no one wants to eat. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> So that's a typical piece. Now, does everybody go through that? No. And do people go through it to different degrees? Absolutely. I have clients that feel like I'm just going all in. I'm listening to every single thing I want right now. And it really is all the foods that they've been restricting and they're not touching vegetables at all. And they're just like, I'm just going with this for a period of time and we'll talk about it in a little bit, but I need to like get this out of my system. And then other people who really ease into it in a way that feels more gentle in that way. And they don't feel like there might be some foods to work through. Like, oh my gosh, these cookies are always the thing that I feel like I overeat. And we have to do more work around that, or it's specifically mac and cheese. And so we're doing more work around those specific foods. So everyone's journey through this is different and it doesn't have to be all or nothing. But for some people that actually is healing to go through that space. So like I said, I can't promise anything and no one's journey is the same either. Yeah, I love that you said that because it's going to vary so drastically where your next step is based on where you're starting. Like if you have been on this like massive restriction for a long period of time, then 
that initial like feeling of out of control may be necessary for your healing process because you felt like you've been, and this is air bunnies here within control because like you're not actually in control. (laughs) So I'm like a big air bunny is there, but you feel like you have been restricting for so long that might be part of your process. Or if you're on the other side of that, where you feel like you have not been restrictive at all, and you would like to look at your diet, that process is going to look very different for you where you start to ask yourself questions like, is this serving me? Does this make me feel good? Those are really the like, start to asking those questions. It doesn't just like open up a whole, I eat whatever I want. Is this going to make me feel good? How does this make me feel? How has this made me feel in the past? Like I know for me, I'm like, that made me feel really sick and I don't want to do that again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you have to learn that sometimes the yes. hard way. In a couple times. <laughs> in a couple times. <laughs> Ten. Like, and then I'm like, nope, you're allergic to eat. that. Not still. still can't eat those. <laughs> no. Checked again, but no. So yeah, I love that. I love that. That it's just going to be so very different for every person. Yeah. And I think you're exactly right. It really depends on how long this has been going on. You know, I have people that have been put on a diet since they were six years old or eight years old, you know, and it's like a lifetime of being told what to eat or being restricted, told their body was wrong, right? And then there's people that at 30 hated the way that their body was starting to look or after a baby and then they diet a little bit, you know, and those two processes are likely going to look very different. And there are some people who their food barely even changes. It's really just about the mindset around it and stopping to have all the rules around it or beat themselves up because they ate a couple chips or a cookie or whatever. So some people, their food doesn't even change that much. Their body doesn't change. It really is just the mindset. And and if we're thinking of you know places to start, that's a great place to start, to just start noticing what rules do I have around food? You know, what are the things I tell myself I should eat or I have to eat? Or do I have rules around types of food? Do I have rules around timing of food? Like, what are these external guidelines I'm following? What am I hearing? Starting to just notice what's out in our culture as a whole. What am I hearing on social media? What am I seeing in Do we still have magazines and magazines, like all the things, right? Where it's just like, you know, what am just starting to kind of notice this culture of restrictive eating? Like that awareness alone is a great starting point without even starting to do anything different with your behaviors. Yeah. I love that. I think we want to move into some things with some of the kids. <laughs> like as I know parents, I do. I have a four-year-old too. Nicole, yeah. Right? So. But he's my first, so you know. He's God's gift to America. (laughs) The world. Yeah. I haven't done a single thing right. I've scarred him in every way because he's my first. So I've screwed everything up. So I think as parents that we want our children to have a healthy and balanced approach to everything that they do, including eating. And I think so many of us and our listeners have been traumatized by experiences with food as children. So how do parents begin the practice of setting our children on a path so that they don't experience the same food issues that we had? Yeah. So I think there is that big picture of you starting to kind of just gain awareness and notice your own thoughts around food, your own feelings about food in your body, your behaviors, that piece of it. 
And then in terms of like the practical, there's an approach to feeding called the division of responsibility by Ellen Satter. Some people naturally do this in their home and it's just what they do. But it's the, again, kind of like intuitive eating, right? Some people just eat and it's like they don't have to call it intuitive eating. They just eat because they never went down the path of, you know, having this like, quote unquote, messed up relationship with food. And so same with feeding kids. Like some people just naturally follow this approach and it works. Other people have gotten off track and they have to kind of have a more formalized idea around feeding. And so what the division of responsibility really is, and I think this is the place that you can start. So Ellen Satter has multiple books and say I'm hesitating a slight bit because I do feel like to some people, her approach is very rigid if you're trying to make it be like, this is exactly how I have to follow it. But the core philosophy is so important in the foundation to how we feed. So that core philosophy, why it's called the division of responsibility is because it really just divides up the responsibilities between parent and child in the feeding and eating relationship. So parents are in charge of the what, when, and where of food. And children are in charge of deciding how much to eat and what to eat from what is provided. So essentially, we're like setting up this model so that children can then eat intuitively. So when I say the what, when, and where, that's parents are choosing, what are we having for dinner tonight? We're having spaghetti and meatballs and broccoli and garlic bread, and that's what's for dinner. And then the kids show up to the table and they get to decide, I only want to eat the pasta part. I don't want meatballs and I only want the garlic bread or whatever it is. And they can choose that those are the only two things I'm eating tonight. And maybe I want more pasta and the parents don't step in and say, but then if you want more pasta, you have to eat broccoli, right? Because I like to say it is set it and forget it. Once you put the food out on the table, you've decided it's 6 p.m. This is what we're having for dinner. We're eating at the kitchen table, the what, when, and where. Now it's up to your child to navigate what food is on the table. Okay. So that doesn't mean they say, I don't want this. And these are like the nuances, but this doesn't mean they say, I don't want this. I'm going to go to the cupboard and get a granola bar. No, we're setting up boundaries. This is what we provide. We're making sure we're offering a variety of foods. So, and then we allow them to eat intuitively from that place so that they can eat as much or as little as they want from the food that's provided. So, that can feel like it's really funny, actually, because to some people, they're like, that feels so rigid and controlling. And what if my kid wants chicken nuggets? I'm just going to make them chicken nuggets. And other people are like, there's no way I can just trust them to eat the amount they want. They'd only eat pasta ever. And so it's kind of funny. People go into it with these different ideas around it. But that's what I often get is like, there has to be like a middle ground. I'm like, this actually is the middle ground. This is the middle ground that you are providing that structure and then you're trusting your child. And that's a key component. Again, going back to what we were talking about earlier around trust. Trust is a key component in this feeding relationship. I'm like all ears for this because First of all, I have my son and I struggle with this every single night, every single meal. What are we going to eat? What are we going to provide him that? How are we going to trick him into eating nutritious foods? And I just, I really love that approach. Um, I have some questions, but I also want to talk a little bit about like common phrases that maybe we hear ourselves saying as parents and like how, what you think of these and like maybe if we could restructure them in a more positive way. So like, okay, 
I was not allowed to, we, we are sisters. <laughs> there was like a, you finish this or you can't leave the table kind of thing. I think a lot of people yeah. had that. Yeah. So like there's the food on your plate and then you are not getting up until that is done. There's the like, okay, oh, well you can have dessert, but if you eat three more bites of that broccoli, three bites of broccoli and you get dessert, like it's like a, some kind of bargaining. Yeah. Yeah. Like a reward weird system of like, you've like got this arbitrary amount of bites and right. Okay. And then the like, okay, you, if you don't like what we're having, I'm not making you something different or you can't eat after this. Like, it's like, okay, it's going to be supper time. And then there's bedtime after that. And if you don't eat any of what we're having at supper, you don't get to eat for the rest of the night. Can you talk a little bit like about these like kind of common things and like, if they're not productive, what we should be doing instead? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You might have to go back and remind me. So where are we starting? So the first one that you talked about was... You can't leave the table. Can't leave the table, right? So you need to finish your plate. Can't leave the table until you do. So I just... What I want to put out first is let's just like think about that for a second. And the idea, right? Again, when we're talking about external rules, that we should just make this, again, arbitrary amount of food be what our child needs to eat in that moment. And then think about the culture that we live in and how many people say, I feel like I can't leave a bite of food on my plate, right? Like, what are we really setting up? We're setting up our children, one, to totally disconnect from their body if they're feeling full. We're teaching them from the start, disconnect from your body and listen to this external guideline right here, which is just whatever happens to be on this plate. It doesn't matter if you're hungry or full right now. You need to eat this, right? And we're teaching them that they need to clean their plate. So, like, that gets built in so that when we're older, we sure. I eat everything on my plate. So we have to look at the consequences of that and what are we really teaching? And so when you say, how do we do that different? It's not dictating portions at all. It goes back to once the food is out, they get to decide. And we can talk about what happens if they don't eat, but they get to decide if they just don't even want to eat right now and they're not hungry, which I think kind of leads into the last question there too. Like, well, this is what we're having, right? And so we're not eating after this. So This goes back to the structure as well and looking at all of that. So one thing that we, let me say a couple things. So one is within this model, you want to make sure that you always offer a safe food so that you are being considerate of your child. So if you know that they hate um, rice. Pork chops. Right? Yes. Pork chops is the answer, Nicole. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, it's so good, right? So you know that he hates pork chops. Let's go with he also hates asparagus and he hates, um, I don't know, some sort of what, like roasted potatoes or something. Let's just say he hates all of those things. So you're not going to put out that food and have that be the only food on the table and then say, sorry, right? Like, sorry, this is what we're having. So basically, we're not trying to be like dictators and just inconsiderate of our children's wants, needs, and feelings, what we're doing is we're being thoughtful, but not turning into permissive in a short order cook where we're now making, like I have three kids. I'm not about to make five different meals every night. What I can do though is ensure that 
if my child doesn't like what I'm serving, like let's go back to say pasta or something, maybe I'm making pesto pasta and they don't like pesto pasta. I can leave out a side of plain pasta that they can have with butter or Parmesan cheese or totally plain if they want along with the other food. So here, and then if they choose, I don't like the pork chops either and I don't want the asparagus. Well, there's enough pasta for them to fill up on and call it a night. So we're not having to make every single component of the meal be safe for them or that they enjoy it, but there needs to be at least something filling and satisfying. I like to say ideally two things, but at least one thing that's filling and satisfying that they can eat and get enough food. And if you know, again, that you have done your job in that and they choose not to eat, then that's their choice not to eat. Now, if that's happening on a regular and consistent basis, you'll need to do some checkpoints, right? Like, are they snacking too close to dinner so they never want to eat the food when it comes? Am I not being considerate enough to include foods that they actually do like at dinner? Am I being maybe too permissive actually and they know that as soon as dinner's over, they can go into the cupboards and get whatever they want. So they're like, I don't care, you know, I can go do this. So there's some things to take into account there. But yeah, so we want to give them permission to not eat if they don't want to eat. And depending on the way that your structure is, again, you might offer a bedtime snack. That's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with offering a snack after dinner. Again, though, this goes back to what's your job. So they don't have to raid the cupboards, but you can just say, you know, we're do, we do simple snacks at bedtime. So if you're hungry and you need something, you can grab a string cheese and a banana. That's like the option. It doesn't have to be this four course meal or anything. It's something that's filling, that's quick and easy, and that's going to be enough so they can go to sleep at night without being starving. There's some things that we can do to kind of help with that. I know, did we fully answer the second question too there? I love, I just love those suggestions. I'm just swimming in those suggestions. Just want to put it out there. The pork chops was me. I would never serve my son pork chops. I've been scarred by pork chops. <laughs> I also, I love how you presented that some of these rules that we had as children, like you have to finish everything on your plate, carry into adulthood and some of the rules that we have where we stop listening to our grown ass adult bodies because we have a rule about finishing things on our plate. I, for one, I had a boyfriend who was obsessed with finishing everything on your plate and it would bother him so much that I didn't. And I was like, this is my plate. Why are you worried about that? You always just leave three bites of chicken. And I'm like, well, I'm done. Like I'm done, but he, it was so ingrained with him that like, there's starving kids in Africa all, but because why? Cause it was on my mm -hmm. plate. Yeah. And like, he would like overfill himself eating the rest of mine. So we didn't have to like throw it out. It was like these types people of people are weird about food waste. It's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. But the, in the reality of it, these are like arbitrary servings that we just kind of like scooped on to our plate that we don't have to finish. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is exactly, well, that actually, that's the other point, right? That you said, what about these arbitrary bites of like three bites of broccoli to get your dessert or whatever that is, you know, it's kind of funny when we think about it, like, yeah, it's three bites of broccoli really going to do anything to improve your health. You know, what about one bite? What about four bites? Like what, what is this like arbitrary thing that we're just coming up with so that our kid eats the couple bites and then gets the dessert. And Again, we have to be really careful about that because, again, what does that set up? It makes dessert feel like this more special coveted thing that I have to earn, which actually puts it on like a separate platform. It also makes broccoli 
turn to like crap food, right? Your kid's like, well, if I have to be forced to eat that, why would I want to eat that? And so it's like this divide, right? My dad is still like to this day, like I hate peas because I was always forced to eat them, you know? And I'm like, you're 65 years old. And he's still like, I hate peas, you know? So when I think about this like long-term relationship with food, do the two bites of broccoli matter today if your kid's going to hate them for the rest of their life? Like, is Let's that go. healthy? Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> I love that. You're so cute. Yes. So I think that's what we have to be really thoughtful about. I always say we're feeding for the future. You know, we are laying this foundation where they actually enjoy foods. And no, they might not eat their broccoli if they don't like it when they're two or four or whatever. But what we do know is that kids are more likely to return to food and actually want to eat it when they came to like it on their own. So the more we pressure and force, the more they're going to push back. Might you get them to eat more broccoli right now? Yes, you might, right? If you make them eat their dessert or make them eat For it that one day. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's great. I, I really love that. That is a lovely segue into my next question too, that if many parents feel like they're stuck in a cycle of where their kids only eat what they would be con- what they would consider to be less desirable choices, nutritionally, air bunnies. Um, But should we be worried if our kids have limited palates and aren't taking in as many like fruits and veggies as we hope they would? Should you be worried? Probably not. (laughs) I literally stay up at night. I literally stay up at night. I can't guarantee anything because I do know there are parents that say my child has major constipation if they don't eat X, Y, and Z foods. So I'm not saying like absolutely not nutrition, right? I'm a dietitian. I'm not pretending like nutrition doesn't make a difference or anything, but our bodies are really quite resilient (laughs) and we in our culture put so much pressure around vegetables and we often have kind of unrealistic expectations of what kids eating should look like. We think like, oh, they should eat a balanced meal. And at every meal, they need to have a little bit of this fresh produce and some grain and some protein. And kids don't tend to eat like that. Like I watch my daughter, she's four now, She might at breakfast only eat scrambled eggs. Like she doesn't want to touch the fruit. She doesn't want to touch bread. She doesn't want to touch anything. She's like scrambled eggs, scrambled eggs. That's me. (laughs) (laughs) Might only eat pasta at dinner later that night or whatever it is. Like it's not typical for kids to actually eat and and not – that all some kids do, but it's not typical for kids to always eat a balanced meal. They often spread out their intake, even pediatricians will say, to look over the course of a week and see, are they getting a variety of nutrients over the course of a week? And we get so hyper-focused on one individual meal or one day or something like that. And what often happens is we end up exacerbating the issue even more because we start telling them, you need to eat your vegetables. You need to do this thing. And now we're making those less desirable packaged foods and things seem off limits. And when something feels bad or like you shouldn't have it, it's human nature to think about it more, to want it more because it feels scarce, right? It's just like adults telling themselves they can't have cookies, they can't have cookies or not eating, you know, doing a 30-day sugar detox. And then when the 30 days are up, they're like, you know, binging on the bags of their kids' candy, feeling guilty about it because they told themselves for that long they couldn't have it. And we start to do that to our kids in this way when we're making certain foods 
feel bad or off limits and other foods feel like they have to eat them, we are creating that dynamic. So should you be worried? Likely no, you know, and also I just want to say maybe it's not like I don't have any problem with fortified foods, but I know that people might come back and say like, oh, well, fortified foods aren't as healthy or whatever. But the truth is by fortifying our food supply, we have gotten rid of so many diseases and issues from malnutrition. So if your kid is eating pasta, they still are getting some iron and some B vitamins and some other things. So they're not going to be nutritionally deprived and we can let them go through this space and have these phases of desiring different foods so that they actually can eat more intuitively. And I know you said you'd had other people on before who probably have talked about the fact that like eating intuitively actually does lead to eating a greater desire and more balanced overall. So if we can let our kids go through those phases of maybe wanting more foods at different times, but not making it into a big deal, then they're likely to actually end up eating more balanced instead of what I look at is like reactionary eating, right? They're eating in reaction to us. I don't want to eat that because you're telling me to, and I only want to eat that because you're not letting me. So then they're not tuned into their body to actually crave the vegetable or the fruit or anything because it's all about us and pushing back against us. So yeah, that was kind of long-winded about what you were asking, but <laughs> no, that's, I, I think that's fantastic. And, and like, honestly, it aligns perfectly with my number one parenting rule. I only have one and it's don't make it a thing. Don't make it a thing, honey. If you make it a thing, it's going to be a thing. And then we have a thing. So it's like, I think that that is such an eloquent way to say, like, just don't make it such a thing. And when you don't, you kind of realize that the pieces sort of fall where they're going to. And, you know, you can always, you know, make small adjustments, but making it a thing is you can't really go back from that. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why too, our job as parents, that's why we have this job though, is in the jobs are divided in the division of responsibility because we can still continue to put out the vegetables, to expose them to it. So they have access to them. But if we go, oh, they won't eat that anyways, and we stop serving it, then they have no choice, right? They have no opportunity to. So we just want to even though we're like, oh, they're never going to eat these, et cetera, we want to keep presenting them. We want to keep putting them out, but allow them to come to eating them on their own time. We want to get them involved in the kitchen so they're more familiar with them, you know, have them come help cook or do something fun with the food. And I don't mean that has, doesn't have to be like, oh, you cut it into every tiny little shape, et cetera, but you can try to use a spiralizer, you know, to spiralize some vegetables or we'll do like, I'll put out a bunch of condiments and just for a meal randomly and be like, here's a bunch of condiments if anyone wants to do a taste test, you know, and it's like, oh, they might want to try their broccoli and barbecue sauce or something, you know, and so we can like just try to make things like more fun and interesting without pressure though. Yeah, because you never do know. You never do know what's going to be the day. Mm. Some days they'll eat three pounds of broccoli and then you serve it. And then the next day they're like, how dare you? This is disgusting. (laughs) And you're like, but you loved it yesterday. Yesterday you ate 40 bananas. Today they're the most disgusting thing you've ever seen. How can that be? But that's true. You got to keep on presenting it because you you never do know what's the day that they might just reach over and you're like, yes, that's a win for me. Mm -hmm. Yes. Watch that apple go down. I love it. Nicole, let's talk about sugar for a second because I know you did mention it and um, and, like with adults and stuff and 
I just want to talk about it with kids for a second because people are really hyper aware to this. And I think that the number one thing that parents do not want to make a mistake on is sugaring up their kid, giving their kid excessive amounts of sugar. And it's so readily available in so many foods that they are marketed to kids and they're presented every day. So can we just talk about like, how should, should we be limiting sugar intake for our kids? And like, if we should, how do we go about this? Yeah, it's such a big topic, right? I have a whole course on <laughs> making sense of sweets, how to how to handle sugar because it's it's complicated, right? And like you said, there's the real world aspect, you know, like one of the moms in my course, she's like, but then we like go to swim and her friend is just pulling out candy and handing it to her. What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to tell her she can't have it if her friend's giving it to her? And then every day there's like another birthday party in school. And so... I remember this and I'm very like liberal. I don't have a big issue with it. It's what I do. And I will, will never forget when my oldest was, he was like five, right? He's playing baseball in the first <laughs> snack. It's like our first introduction into like any sort of organized sport. And he gets his like little snack bag after baseball and he opens it up. It's an entire box of airheads, not just like one airhead, a box of airheads, like <laughs> some sort of juice, a yogurt, sweetened yogurt tube. I still remember. Oh, no, maybe it wasn't juice. It was Gatorade. And I'm like, he's five. And he did yeah. not just like run around. Like he, was elect he needs his electrolytes. Oh, he's five God. years old. What is going on <sighs> here? Right. But this is like the real world stuff like you're talking about, you know, so how do we navigate the birthday party left and right, the after sports snack bag, like all the things, you know, that are coming up. And so this goes back to the variety piece. Should we try to limit sugar? No, because we're going to make it a thing, right? We're going to make it a thing. But can we be sure that we're focused on offering variety? And can we trust our children? May, might they eat a little more sugar than we think is ideal? Yes, maybe they will because that's the real world. But guess what? <laughs> There's always going to be sugar around. So if you make it a bigger deal, they're going to be, you know, 15 and going out with their friends or whatever and downing the milkshakes or something because they were never allowed to have one or whatever it is, you know? So we have to recognize it does exist. We're not always going to be there to control their food intake. So the best thing we can do is help them have a healthy relationship with sugar so that they can self-regulate it. And I see this again and again and again with my kids. Like, Yesterday, they were out of school for um, Veterans Day when we're recording this, right? So they were out of school. And so we went on a walk in the morning and there's a donut shop. And my husband was like, let's get donuts for like the day off, whatever. So we like walked and got coffee and donuts and came back. My kids got huge donuts yesterday. And I literally watched every single one of them walk away and leave over half of a donut on their plate because... They didn't want anymore because they get donuts. Like, it's not that big of a deal. We get donuts. Like, it's not the, oh my gosh, we're going to get donuts today. And it's like, it's the not one the last one ever. No, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They know. And they know if they don't finish that one, they can ask me to save it and they can have it again. Do you know how many donuts I end up throwing out? Yes, all the time because they, they forget about them. They don't care that much. But when we give permission with a variety of food, right? So we got home and like put out, I don't remember, glasses of milk and fruit and 
or maybe I put out yogurt or something, right? I'm giving the opportunity for them to eat some protein if they want to eat some produce. I'm incorporating more variety, which is back to the main point, but still giving them access to sugar as well. So they have the opportunity to eat both. And I know some people will say, right, but not my kid. They would never leave a donut. And it's probably because they don't feel safe that they're going to get to have the sugar and sweets again and again and again. They probably do feel like what I would call again, energy around it, that there's some sort of energy, that there's a sense of deprivation that, or we use language like they're unhealthy. We shouldn't eat too many. And what does that do? It makes it feel bad. And if it feels bad, it means I shouldn't be eating this, which means I'm not going to be getting it again soon. So I better eat it now, right? So usually kids that would never leave sweets, it's because there's some sense of scarcity or deprivation there. Even if you're providing food, it could be in the language that you use to talk about it, right? It could be the way it's the what they're picking up on and how they feel about it. So kids that can self-regulate will end up, yeah, potentially eating maybe a little bit more sugar than you think is ideal, but they also can leave it when they've had enough. Yeah, I love that. Love it. <laughs> love it. So I want to get into some body composition a little bit. Is there a way to talk to children about their body composition? How should we talk to children who might feel uncomfortable in their body or worried about their body size compared to peers? And this is just such an important one. And it starts so young. Oh my God. So young. It's wild. So I was hoping you had some... And it's always linked to food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think it it depends on the age of the child, right? And what they're capable of fully understanding, what they're saying. First, I just want to say... I don't think we should talk to kids about their body unless they are bringing it up. So we don't want to make their body be a thing again, right? We don't want to make it be an issue. We don't want to point out anything different about their body or that we have concerns about it or make any mention that we think something could be wrong about their body. However, they might bring it to us like, I'm fat or I have a big tummy or I don't like my legs or whatever that might be. So... I think there's a couple things. One is when they say something like, I'm fat or make some sort of observation, I have bigger legs than Susie or whatever it might be. I always encourage like asking questions about that, you know, instead of us putting some sort of judgment on it, like, oh, no, 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 you're not fat, honey. No, 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 you're not fat. Or, you know, trying to change it at all. Just, oh, like, what does fat mean to you? You know, what does that mean? Like, I always encourage asking more questions so that we can get information because they also could just be making an observation. And now we're starting to put a judgment on it when maybe they were just observing. Another thing that I love that is not the line that I have or that I came up with, but I did an interview um, for one of my courses with Emma Wright. And we had this conversation. She has a course called Raising Confident Kids. And so I had her on to talk. And she said, when your kid says something, um, instead of, again, trying to change it or anything, you can just say, like, it really sucks to not like something about your body. Like, I know how that feels, right? Like, just to have compassion for that, to just let them be heard, to just open up that conversation that they know it's a safe place to talk to you about. So 
I really like that, especially if you're feeling a little bit stuck on like, you know, we as, as parents go, it's that moment. What do I say? (laughs) Yes, exactly. You're like, here it is. I'm in it. And then I I don't know what to say. Don't screw this up. Don't screw this up. (laughs) Absolutely. Right. Like that's the thing. And so to really just be like, yeah, that sucks. Instead of trying to like, no, you don't have those size legs or that it doesn't matter. It's not important, right? We want to be like, you're beautiful and the size of your legs isn't important. It's like, that's not what they want to hear though. They need somebody to actually hear them, to feel heard. So we can step in in that way as well. Depending on the age of your child, we can also talk to them about the culture we live in. And so that we can start to point out like, yeah, other people act like, certain size bodies and shapes are more valuable. And I don't believe that. What do you think about that? And we can start to kind of point out and notice the culture that the culture is what's wrong, not your body. So maybe you do live in a bigger body. Maybe you have a child that does live in a bigger body. The last thing we want to do is make them feel like they're wrong. They need to change. But we can show them that there is some truth in what they're saying, right? That like, there's value in being thinner in our society. And so how can we help them see that is true? And it's not about your body though. So when we can start to help point that out to them so they can start to spot it and think about it more critically instead of just taking it in that thin is better, smaller is better, I need to diet, I need to lose weight, I need to change my body or any body size or shape. We also now have so many things like strong is the new thin or like all these things that we can start to really help them see that there's something valuable about body diversity and that all people have different sizes and shapes of bodies. And that's like the cool part of being human. And there's a great video too. It's uh, called Poodle Science showing like all different dogs and their sizes and shapes and like why would we try to act like a Great Dane should be the size of a poodle? Like there's all this. And so that's a good one for kids too. You would be able to see like, yes, body diversity is actually valuable and something that we should value instead of trying to make everybody look a certain way. So I think that's kind of the main picture that we want to be sending our kids. Oh, I love I, it. Yeah, I really love that you brought that up because the truth is, is that we're not going to convince them of what they're noticing is different. And that's But that's a knee-jerk reaction, though. Yes. It's like, no, 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 you're not different. You said, like, you're, you have to try to talk them out of everything that they're seeing. And the things that they're seeing are real. Mm-hmm. So now you kind of look like a liar. Mm-hmm. It's such a short-lived thing too, right? Like if you're speaking to a kid and, and they're noticing that they're in a bigger body and then you try and convince them that they're not, then you're lying and it's not going to create that trust. And it just creates this like bad dynamic of like, no, no, no. But then they have to live in this world and it shifts the blame from like, this is not about this is not something that's wrong with you. This is something we are noticing and thinking critically about that's in our culture and that we can not participate not, in. <laughs> not participate in. Like we are not playing. <laughs> and what a wonderful time because so many of us are not playing anymore. <laughs> We're not playing this game. Absolutely. And it's so true what you were just saying, right, about the trust. I have so many clients that are like, 
Yeah, but they're my mom, so they have to say that or whatever. You know, it's like they don't believe you just because you're saying that, you know? So it's like, let's actually really validate what they're seeing and what they're feeling and let them have space to do that, you know, in a place that they feel comfortable and safe to be able to do that instead of trying to change them. And, and there's that piece too about like some of the language sometimes we use is like, you're not fat, you're beautiful. And it's like, well, then what are we saying about fat then? You can't be, be yes. right? Like, so there's all these little kind of, again, knee jerk things that mm-hmm. parents or even friends want to say to their other friend that's like, oh, I'm so fat. And then another friend wants to be like, no, you're not, you're beautiful. And it's like, well, why can't you be fat and beautiful? You know, yeah. like again, Didn't we're say beautiful. Was beautiful. <laughs> Didn't say anything about my beauty. <laughs> you know, and again, then we're not, promoting that body diversity again is beautiful. beautiful. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. I love that so, so, so much. And I know our listeners are going to want to hear more from you. Absolutely. Where can our listeners get more from you? Where can they find you? Yeah. Thank you for asking. So I'm pretty active on Instagram at Nicole Cruz RD. And I also have a private and free Facebook group called Joyful Eating for Your Family. So it's a community that you can join and just get more info, ask questions. I will say though, um, we have a lot of rules in the group to keep it as quote unquote, safest space as possible. I don't believe that's entirely possible on social media. I do my best though to try to to be in there and moderate it and things. But we do have a lot of rules because we, again, do not promote good food, bad food, you know, junk food and talking about food in that way that's going to potentially um, be harmful to other individuals who might eat that food, who where it's not helpful to our children, that sort of thing. So just I put that out because some people think that it's just like, oh, great, this is a great nutrition group. I'm like, no, 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 this is not about feeding kids to be healthy, although it is, but it's not about healthy foods. It's about laying that healthy relationship with food and recognizing that all individuals have different needs and different desires around food, different means to purchase food, all sorts of things. And so so I just want you to know that going in that we are like a fat positive, value all bodies and value all foods actually for people. So you are more than welcome to join and learn more from the members of the group and from myself, as well as like I said, you can follow me on Instagram. And I do have a couple courses and I'll be doing Making Sense of Sweets very soon again. So if you're feeling like for the holidays and everything, you might need some extra support around navigating sugar. Uh, That's coming up too. Awesome. So fantastic. I feel like I've learned a ton today. I know that mothers are going to value this episode tremendously because the things that you're saying, just they just make sense. It just makes so much sense. They're just little people. <laughs> and I really think that that, uh, that those approaches are, are really effective and talking about health as if it only involves food is just one of the biggest mistakes that we make. And health is so much more encompassing than that. And I think you did a great job of highlighting that this episode. So thank you so much for coming on with us. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And I think you just kind of summed it up and hit the nail on the head for all of it, that health really is about our mental and emotional well-being as well. And um, it's not just about the food you put in your body. And we really have to take that into account with our kids and their relationship with food as well. So thank you. Thank you. 
Love it. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you so much for listening to the Thick Thighs Save Lives podcast. If you'd like to join our movement, get in our free app, CVG Nation, available in your app store. We have an amazing community of women, coaches to help you with your movements, challenges, and we give away leggings daily in there. Rachel and I are in there every day, so it's a perfect place to get in touch with us. This podcast is made possible by Constantly Varied Gear, so be sure to check out ConstantlyVariedGear.com. Have an amazing week. Crush your goals.